Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to another episode of Happy Mum, Happy Baby, the podcast. Today's guest is a midwife who is passionate about birth rights, empowerment, birth trauma, motherhood, politics, race, social justice and white privilege. She's actually at the start of lockdown started her own um, Instagram account where she talks about motherhood and her own experiences. It's called Mixing Up Motherhood and she's also the mum to a little girl. It's Eileen Morrison. Hello. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm fine. How are you? I'm really good. You actually listen to the podcast. I actually listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I love the podcast. And I said to my mum, I said, oh, you know, I'm going to be speaking to Giovanna from Happy Mum, Happy Baby. And she went, from what? And I went, the baby club, mum. And she went, the baby club? <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and that's so weird that people even know me from that. I've been at... Um, uh, the, I remember going to the Harvest Festival and a little girl in the front row just kept turning around and waving at me. And I just did, I couldn't work out why. And then it suddenly twigged the baby club. The kids know you. They know you. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? This is a very odd time. Lockdown in itself is very bizarre. Um, and obviously recently things have notched up a gear and... The world is awakened in many ways, but realising how asleep they are at the same time. How, how are you? Yeah. So lockdown-wise, the, the beginning of lockdown was a bit like, what? Like, what am I doing? And then the middle was like, OK, I'm getting used to this. This could be my new normal. Yeah. It could be OK. I don't really mind not socialising with people. It's not so bad. But now we're getting to like this kind of funny end bit. And I'm like, OK, listen, listen, I just need some clarity. <laughs> mm -hmm. I just need clarity. I just need to know what's normal, what's not. Can I walk that way in the supermarket? Can I not? Like, is it OK? Um, so it's all a little bit up in the air. And, you know, with different countries doing what they like, whatever they want, um, it's more confusing, especially for us, because my husband is actually locked down in Spain and has been since the middle of March. Um, and we're sort of like waiting on sort of tender hooks when will he be back? And, you know, Spain are saying yes, England saying no, England saying yes, Spain saying no. Um, and that's just made things a little bit more complex. Um, there are some days where I'm like, I need my husband to come and take this child. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so it's definitely become more difficult in that sense um, with a toddler 
essentially by myself. Luckily enough, I'm with my parents and um, they're amazing and my younger sister. But when you, I mean, when you're parenting together, no one has that same responsibility. Like I could say to my mum, mum, can you watch her? And she can say, actually, no. Whereas if I say to my <laughs> husband, can you watch her? He can't say no. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, you ask it's it. It's definitely... like a question, but it's not really a question. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sort of like, I've left the room before even waiting for the answer. <laughs> so how did he end up locked down in Spain? Did it just happen that everyone... Because my, my aunt lives in Spain and it was just suddenly overnight, yeah. we're locked down. No. So basically, Omar is Spanish. My husband mm -hmm. is Spanish. Um, and we had been living in Spain for a while last year. Um, during my maternity leave and I decided to come back to work. So I came back to England um, in October and in that time he was still working in Spain so he needed to wrap things up and, and stuff and so he was coming every month um, and he was visiting for like two weeks and or a week or whatever and then he was supposed to come back um, in March and be here. Um, but he hadn't managed to tie up some things at work and thought, okay, I'll pop back and then I'll come back. Mm. That popping back. So <laughs> the day before lockdown, he was like, no, I'm going to go, but I'll, I'll come back. And I was like, you're not going to be able to come back, you know. And he was like, no, I will. I will. I'll, it'll be fine. And um, that morning when he left, I was like, I won't see this guy for a while. <laughs> really? And funnily enough. Um, and so, yeah, that was coming up to three months ago. Um, he's not due back till the 4th of July and who knows what will happen with that. So yeah. that will be three and a half months. Um, I can imagine so, as well yeah. it started <laughs> off as a bit of like, ah, ha, ha, you got that, you lucky you. And since then, yeah, yeah. your patience has been waning a bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Every conversation is sort of like, what did you do today? I'm like, well, the same as I bloody did yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But, you know, and then I think... Back to your question, when this, um, when unfortunately George Floyd was murdered um, and it brought up a whole lot of issues um, within sort of the black and white community and the racism that black people do are faced with on a daily basis, mm -hmm. I think the trauma, the trauma of having it thrown in your face over and over and over again, the injustices faced that you're facing as a black person, it's nothing to do with you doing something to someone else. It is literally the colour of your skin. I think that for me, that whole week, I had just had this feeling of just being so, so tired. And I was sleeping okay, like, but it was that kind of... And it was a mix of being tired, but just being constantly apprehensive. Like, yeah. what is the world for me, for my child, for my siblings, for my parents, for, for all those people that I hold dear, but also the wider black community. Like, what what is this, what is it for us? Like, And, and you know, I think social media is, is incredible, but also it was just an overload of, oh, yeah, and you're at risk because you're black. Oh, yeah, and you're at risk because you're black. Oh, yeah, and you're at risk because you're black. And it was like... Jeez, like if you told me that I was at risk because I was a child, I could say in 10 years time, well, it's fine because I won't be a child anymore. But I can't change being black. Mm. And so that means that the whole world around me needs to change. 
and that isn't going to happen overnight yeah or you know so yeah I think it must be was, very was, strange having all those the, all those stats and figures if you like thrown out constantly to make white people see the situation clearly because it does feel like there has been this eyes wide type thing that's happening and people are seeing it so it is that I guess it's that case of making sure that information is there so that people can't go oh there is no issue because there clearly is but for a black person that must just be like I don't I can't see this anymore because that is my reality and and I don't you know I know that you have to wake up and see what our lives are and what 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 racism does to us on a daily basis but at the same time it's something that I live and yeah you know you you must be very exposing it is and it's also just that thing of saying okay you've got the stats now you've got the stats and you've got activists who are willing to spend their time and explain things to you and yet you're coming to me yeah who is dealing with their own traumas and their own issues and you want me to spend the time and explain it to you and you want to tell me about oh but oh but Mm -hmm. and I'm telling you there's no oh but (laughs) there's no oh but because what you do by doing that is you make me relive whatever traumas and whatever interactions I have had over and over and over again for you to then turn around and say but Mm. and it's like no (laughs) no there's you know I can't do it I can't do it to myself um and it's, it's not just strangers on the internet because my DMs, like I've had so many people just like coming and be like, oh, but, oh, but, oh, but. And I've had to sort of create a boundary in that sense. But it's friends, like friends who I've known for years who were doing the same thing. And I'm saying, please don't do this. Don't do this. Don't use your privilege in that way. Um, because I, you know, you are privileged enough to ask and I don't get that. I live it. Mm. So ask someone else. <laughs> Read, yeah. study, you know, go to the activists and pay them their money and let them teach you. But please don't come to me and ask me to to tell you my lived experience, which is not going to be positive. It's not it's not going to be something that I want to, you know, talk over and over and over again. Um, and so it's been quite difficult in that sense. I imagine as well, just because everyone else has woken up doesn't mean that you are ready or want to share. It's like, you know, that just because you're suddenly, you know... Ready to listen. Ready to listen doesn't mean (laughs) I want to talk. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, social media... Like, so I created this Instagram page and that was... It's it's been brilliant for me, um, but... What has ended up happening is when you give a little bit of yourself, people get a sense of entitlement that they can then have access to you or to um, kind of demand something of you that maybe you don't want to give. So I had someone say to me today, oh, you're not speaking on race anymore. Well, hold on. I am black. You've woken up to me being black, but I don't. I don't need to speak about it every day. It's 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 my it's my day in day out. I don't need to speak about it, and I am a multifaceted human being who can speak about many things. <laughs> there is more to me, which I have realised, than the colour of my skin, and especially at a time like this, I can't I can't constantly 
do that. You know, it's not it's not fair and it's also not not really appropriate either. Mm. What was your childhood like? Oh my gosh, I had the best childhood. Um so I am one of eight. Um and I was born in London and when we were well when I was about five we moved to Norwich so you know on the coast um a really funny place what 20 years ago was that a big shift because I can remember moving out from East London to Essex and feeling like I felt like Mary Poppins right so as a child I don't think I would have even noticed it but looking back This was the most bizarre place. Like, people here, you know, they say about Norwich, you know, you you kind of, you only go to Norwich if you're going to Norwich. It's such a, you don't end up there. Like, it's such an awkward place to get to. So people didn't really, it's not transient at all. So people weren't coming in and out. You went to Norwich because you're from Norwich. And when you went went on holiday, you went, you know, you went to Yarmouth or, you know, you went to a little other coastal town. People weren't really seeing um, black people. And I went to school and children would say things like, you know, do you taste like chocolate? And, you know, we'd get stared at all the time. And there was maybe one other black family and it was like, I, you know, <laughs> like, um, so that was all very bizarre. But when I was about seven, I think I did two years at school. Mm. My parents and a group of other parents decided to take us out of school and set up their own school. So they made their own school and it had about 25 students and it was called the Norwich Academy. And we had uniforms, we had, you know, upper school and a lower school. Um, And, you know, we had like a a curriculum. Um, And so that was from seven to 16. Wow. Um, Were all your siblings there as well? All my siblings, yeah. So... It was, it was amazing. It was, and, 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 you know, looking back, me and my sister were having this conversation the other day and it was like, our parents did that to us as a protection. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when people are speaking now about the black curriculum and how schools aren't covering the appropriate topics, looking back, my dad, who is um, an academic, was like, nah my children aren't going to learn what they need to learn. And they're also not going to be on a conveyor belt of you need to be ticking all of these boxes and, and, you know, reaching these levels. And it was incredible. Like, if I had all the time, I'm I'm sure we could speak to you about this for hours because we did um, plays at local theatres, like big theatres. We'd write our own plays and we'd all be in them. We did tournament week, which was like a sports week. It was like, it was was amazing. Um, And... You know, part of it was when I was 13, my parents sent me to live in Spain for nine months with another family who were basically kind of doing a similar thing to us. Mm-hmm. And so a couple of years before, their son had come and lived with us. And so then a few years later, they were like, now take our problem child. <laughs> um, so, um, and my sister had done it. My sister had done it the year before I did it. And she was in Seville and I went to Granada. For nine um, months? My brother, for nine months, yeah. Whoa. Yeah. My brother had been in Germany and he did that for nine months. So we'd all done like sort of different places. So, you know, I'm fluent in Spanish from that experience. 
Um, and then met a Spanish man and that's, you know. Uh, <laughs> Tell but, me this though, because I read, did you meet your husband yeah. when you were 11? The first time? Yeah. Yeah. And what so, happened? Basically, I, can, I will never forget how our first interaction. So Umar is my best friend's cousin. Um, and we'd gone to their house and they had a pool in the garden and I, I had a bikini, a little holiday bikini on. And she, we were all in the pool playing together and she thought it would be funny if she went under the water and undid the, the ties on my bikini. And so all of a sudden I'm in the pool and suddenly I'm naked. And <laughs> I, I mean, it's happened to I'm, all of us. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and to be honest, at 11, what's really there? Um, but that was my sort of first meeting with Omar. Um, so I then, like it. The story is, well, she was naked. And, well, uh... she was naked. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And um, after that, I then moved to Granada and I would go to Seville to see his cousin every now and then. Um, after living there, I'd then go back sort of every year or every other year I'd go and visit over the summer. And when... I was 18, I went to visit again. And he'd been studying in Morocco. And so he was very different. He looked very different. And all of a sudden I was like, whoa, who are you? <laughs> and um, he said, we were, we, were, we were out walking one night and he said, um, I've known I was going to marry you since I was 15. So, you know, what what are you thinking? And I, was said, I said, well, I'm, I'm not going to marry you, but, you know, this is cute. It's fine. <laughs> and um, lo and behold, three years later, I only went and married him. So that's there we crazy. go. I guess that's that's that is the first and last thing he's ever been right about. <laughs> I'll give him that one. <laughs> so when you were younger, because obviously you travelled a lot, you travelled around a lot, and uh, <laughs> it seems like your family unit were a really tight unit with schooling and everything together as well. When you used to look ahead, what was family-like life for you as a grown-up? And did you think about yourself as a mum? So family life to me was always close to my mum, close to my siblings. Um, we would all kind of raise our children together. We, they would basically just be like, we'll leave mum's house for a little bit and then we'll all just come back with our kids. Um, and... So I always saw myself as a mother. I didn't necessarily see when it would happen, how it would happen, how many there mm -hmm. would be. But I saw motherhood as sort of being like a, a just like an automatic part of my journey, really. Like it was like, yeah, you know, and then I'll have kids and then mm. you'll have kids and we'll all have kids. And, you know, it was kind of like a no brainer. Yeah. So, and so after you got married, was it something mm -hmm. that you two had discussed and or did, what, at what point did you start doing midwifery? Because that's obviously, was that something that you just felt an urge to do? Did you feel like that is what I, you know, how did you get there? So basically, I had applied to do paediatric nursing. And it, throughout my whole childhood, I'd said, you know, I'll do this and I'll become this and I'll become, you know, lots of different things. But all centred around essentially helping people. Mm. Um. And so I was, you know, hadn't really decided what I was going to do. And then I, there were only five spaces on the paediatric nursing course and I got the sixth place. And they said, you know, if someone drops out, the place is yours, blah, blah, blah. But I, I was like, well, 
you've rejected me now. I don't even know if I want the place. So, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. Um, the place didn't come up anyway. Right. So um, that left me kind of being like, OK, well, what am I going to do? Well, you know, I'll be a midwife. It was just like, I'll be a midwife. Fine. Um, and so I started an access course and I was doing it with my sister and she is now a speech and language therapist. And so we were both doing the same access course. And um, there were people on this course who were super passionate and were like, you know, and I want to be a midwife because I want to do this. And they're like, why do you want to be a midwife? I was like, well, I could, couldn't be a pediatric nurse. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Like, and um, so I then went to apply for universities and I'd applied for predominantly London universities and then one in Norwich. And they called me and they said, one of your universities has, um, they don't have the course anymore. They aren't doing the course for this year. And I was in bed and I said, oh, all right then. So what do you want me to do? And they said, well, you can go on UCAS and you can check for loads of others and blah, blah, blah. Um, and decide which one you want to kind of replace that one with. And I went, Oxford Brooks? And he goes, you don't need to decide now. And I went, oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> now, Giovanna, let me tell you. I did not know where Oxford was in relation to Norwich. I did not know anything <laughs> about the course. Honestly, I, I hope your you parents are left to know it off the, the curriculum. <laughs> Geography was not on the curriculum. <laughs> Honestly, like I, 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 it was ridiculous. But within about four days, I'd got an, an interview offer from Oxford, and I said to my dad, "Oh, father, can you?" call him father can you drop me to the interview please and he was like is me drop me like it's around the corner and um he said oh Eileen, oh, you know that's that's a lot that's a long way I said it's not that far it was four hours <gasps> and um yeah it's quite far now this is like I am exposing myself I am laying myself bare for you <laughs> on the way to the interview he said to me so have you looked at any issues in midwifery at the moment? Any issues in maternity? And I went, oh, no, maybe I should do that. <laughs> so <laughs> I did that. Had a quick Google, whatever. Got to the interview. Um, and one of the first questions they asked me were, are there any issues in midwifery at the moment? And I went, well, let me tell you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my gosh. my mind. So I was ready, you know, I was ready to told them everything. Um, and that following day, they called me and they offered me a place. And I was like, oh, great. Well, that's fine. Uh, I, I guess I'll just go. And so I withdrew from all of my other choices. <laughs> and I was like, I'm just going to go there. It was pretty. It Can was I just fine. say, I know from like college days or sixth form that Everyone was like, Oxford Brooks is amazing. Like, that's proper, that's a proper place I, to go. That's like, I know. That's what I found out afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> People saying to me, no way did you get into Oxford Brooks. It's really hard to get in yes. there. And I was like, is it? <laughs> I just had a quick Google on the way and just blacked my way through the interview. Yeah. I know. And the thing is, I think that attitude has been something that has got me where I am it's just I I just take things as they come it's like oh yeah. yeah sure let's just do it like that or let's you know whatever and I remember so 
Omar had to speak to my dad to ask to marry me. And he spoke to my dad in the April before I started university. And he said, you know, I'd, I'd like to marry her, blah, blah, blah. Or maybe it was like June, whatever. And um, my dad said, come back to me the next spring. And I remember just being like, what? I'm going to have to wait till next spring. And he said, and I now know exactly what he was doing. And he told me a few years later and he said, you weren't going to get married before starting your studies because then you would never have done them he said you would have got married and you would have gone to Spain and you would have had babies and and that's it and he said and you need to have something of your own now that is a lesson that I will always teach my own children and I tell people around me younger people you know who probably don't want to hear it because they can't see the importance of it but I would never I would never have gone to university I would have said I would have and then I would have just been like oh my god I'm pregnant well (laughs) that's what would have happened to me yeah um and so I and once I'm in I wasn't going to quit so I was in and that meant that I was going to um continue forward with it yeah um so we kind of it was it worked very well I got married at the end of my first year um and kind of continued on from there so it was it worked out quite well um and it also stopped me from having babies too soon (laughs) okay so you weren't having your own babies but at some point you saw other babies being born what was that exactly in terms of like stumbling into a profession and suddenly being with women at their (laughs) most vulnerable what was that like honestly surreal like I was like whoa like whoa (laughs) and I honestly I I adore 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 women I I adore women and so on that level I never struggled with it I every mentor I had would have said you know she's so good with the women she cares so much with women she speaks so well with the women every teacher I had would have told you I was a bloody nightmare like, oh god Illy, like why do you what like what <laughs> and so but that goes back to schooling because yeah I was never taught to to kind of be like here you go here's the marking criteria just follow it it's really actually quite straightforward I was taught to be a free thinker mm-hmm. how do you interpret what this says and then go with what you think it is so getting into that whole institutionalized structured way of learning that was like a slap in the face. That was hard work. That was probably, and my dad said, um, you know, because there are so many of us. And, and I said, you're proud of me, aren't you? And he said, out of all of my children, I'm probably most proud of you because oh. we, 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 never, we never thought you would be able to do this. <laughs> he, said, he said, I know how hard that must have been for you to, to go through that, you know, those sort of three and a half years of being sort of kept in a cage so Mm. to speak having to really follow rules um and you got through it and came out the other end now when people talk to me about masters and further study I'm like you must be insane (laughs) like no 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 so that university was very interesting um I'm sure my lecturers hate me which is fine (laughs) what was it like when you first saw um a baby being born so the first birth I attended, now this will show you just how well I can blag my way into anything. So 
I wasn't even supposed to be on placement. And I went to the hospital because I had to hand in some paperwork or something. And they said, oh, um, there's someone having a baby in that room. Did you want to go? And I went, yeah, that's fine. I don't mind. Yeah, that's fine. Just give me some gloves. Right? I, had, I hadn't seen a birth. I hadn't, I hadn't had any witnesses. I'd done nothing. I said, yeah, that's fine. Oh, I'm looking forward to this, whatever. Walked in the room, delivered the baby. And she was like, the midwife then said to me afterwards, have you had, how many witnesses have you had then? I went, none. <laughs> and she went, oh. And I went, oh. <laughs> I said, well, I guess now I don't need any witnesses because I've started delivering babies. <laughs> there we go. What was so it like? That... How did you feel seeing that baby come into the world? Honestly, I think I, I, think I thought I knew what it was going to be. Mm. And then I saw it and I was like, shut the front door. <laughs> like, you know, I'd seen the, I knew the anatomy. I knew what it was supposed to be like. But what I didn't know is how it would feel. Mm. So seeing life come into the world is such a privilege that it can't be underestimated. I was the first person to touch this baby. You know, I put that baby on its mother's chest, having never been touched before. That's me. That's my, that's, that is a huge responsibility. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the ultimate privilege. And I think it never gets old. I think that, I would just cry every single time. Yeah. Like that, that kind of, oh, every time. You don't, you, there is not a time when I have not had that kind of um, spine tingling feeling of this is life, ever. And that is so humbling. Like I can never express gratitude to women who entrust me to do that. Yeah. So that's sort of how birth makes me feel how did it make <laughs> do you know what i think any woman who's given birth or is about to give birth or even thinking about it in the future i just think hearing your words it's just so lovely that you even think of it in that way because i think yeah. for me every midwife i've had in my in my different labors they've been such an important part of of what happens and how it goes and you know, sometimes I've zoned out and I hear their voice and I've seen one of my friend's mum. It's very odd how you kind of, your head goes to different places. But I've always felt very lucky to feel so comfortable with those women who I just yeah. entrust with me at my most vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. And it's giving that the respect it deserves. Mm. And part of giving it the respect it deserves is taking yourself out of the equation. However you feel about your day, about your life, about that person. You have to. And it, it takes time. That is not something, like, I'm not going to tell you that my first birth was like that. Like, it's, 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 it's something that I think I've still got to learn, you know. It's, mm. But you can only try. And so you say, right, well, this isn't me. What I do in this one moment, because I could go from your room to another room to another room, but what I do in your room right now will affect you for the rest of your life. Mm. And knowing 
that that's what your role is in someone's life will change your attitude 100%. Now, if you if you approach it like, oh, it's a job, midwifery will never, ever be just a job. It can't. So when you say, right, fine, I am vital in this woman's experience, not because I'm important to me, but because I'm important to her, it changes everything. Your whole approach will change. You will walk into that room and you will say, right now, you are everything. And having someone that cares for you in that way will make your experience stellar. And it does not matter the outcome. It doesn't matter mode of birth. At that point, that doesn't matter anymore. So you could say, oh man, like I really wanted a hypnobirth, home birth, uh, whatever. And I ended up with a cesarean section, but I was at the center of what happened in my experience. I'm empowered. Mm. If you have the opposite, it can be disastrous. Yeah. So I'm not, I don't underestimate my role. I don't underestimate my privilege. I'm very fortunate. And I'm I grateful just, to every woman who trusts me. I love the fact that you stumbled into this, but you talk about it with such devotion and passion. Yeah. And I think when I wasn't feeling so enamoured at a time in my own life, I had to step back because that's not for anyone else to, to take on. Mm. So if I can't give you 110... I don't have the right to be here. Yeah. And that is really, I, I, at the moment, I'm not working because I can't devote that time to it. And so I'm not going to do that to a woman. Mm. You know, so it's, I did stumble on it, but I think I always say this to people, like, this job chose me. I didn't choose it. I am very fortunate to have just come, come to it, or it came to me, and... Lucky me. I think any woman who has you in that room is very, very lucky. Very lucky. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Knowing everything and seeing everything that you had, when it came to having your own baby, did it... Did any of that sort of play on your mind, the things that you'd seen? How did you feel going into, well, first of all, pregnancy yourself and knowing what that whole journey was going to be? Yeah, so <laughs> pregnancy is the same thing. You know, I approach pregnancy in the same way I approach everything. Um, I was commuting back and forth from Norwich to London and I was working three long days and then going back to Norwich and I was absolutely knackered and so after about four months I was like oh you know what I'm just gonna have a baby because I need some paid leave <laughs> so I said to my husband oh I want to have a baby and he said well are you sure because I'm not I said oh don't worry like I'm not going to force you it's not you know it's not like that when you know you know what to do if you don't want a baby the following month I was pregnant so <laughs> That explains that, doesn't it? <laughs> so at this point, again, I've approached it like it's just another part of my life. Like I'm just yeah. going to have a baby and whatever. And I honestly loved being pregnant. I like at t about 10 weeks, I remember I'd been working and I got home and I went to the toilet and there was so much blood. And I called my sister and I said, I think I'm losing the baby. And she said, no, 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 you're not, you're not, it's fine, it's fine, it's absolutely fine like this. And throughout the whole night, I was still bleeding, I'd keep going to check and then still bleeding, still bleeding. But I thought, I've got to work tomorrow, so I'm just going to go into work. And I went to, um, I went to work and I couldn't speak, I was still bleeding, I couldn't speak. And I was like, okay, well, you know, it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine. And there's one midwife named Aset, and she is everything, everything I would aspire to be. And I walked on shift and she'd been on the night shift and she looked me in the eye and I just started crying. And she said, just come to the room, whatever. And we started speaking and I said, I think I'm losing the baby. And she said, Illy, you could sit on a cloud right now and it wouldn't make a difference. Because if that's what's happening, that's what's happening. And so between her and another midwife, who's fantastic as well, they organized me to have a scan and all the rest of it and I had the scan and it just turned out to be a bit of a hematoma there was a little pocket of blood that was just bleeding and there's that little child of mine wriggling around and I was like oh you little bugger but that's fine <laughs> so you're fine it's fine and I took some time off work because I thought you know what you just need to look after your baby and I you know had another episode a bit later but it was just nothing it was you know but I was like take it easy take some time off besides that my pregnancy was an absolute dream I I cherish every moment I have nothing but fond memories about carrying my daughter you know I there's nothing negative about it one day of heartburn and I mean working in maternity and I do say this to people being a midwife who's pregnant is always going to be very different because you're in a very concentrated area where you see everything. For women on, you know, your everyday woman, they're saying, once I get to 12 weeks, um, it's safe. You know, it's safe, it's fine. Whereas I'm seeing women who come in with reduced movements at 38 weeks 
and end up with stillbirths. And I'm going, when, when is it ever fine for me? Mm. You know, it feels like it's never going to be fine until that baby is out and in my arms. But I was very easy. I was sort of like, you know, and, and I worked with a brilliant trust and they were very protective over the pregnant mums. And we weren't, we dealt with sort of, you know, everything's fine. You're low risk. They were, you know, brilliant. So, you know, I just thought, well, I've had a brilliant pregnancy. I'm going to have a brilliant birth. I went, oh, I'm just going to have a home birth. Yeah, of course I'm going to have a home birth. <laughs> what do you mean? Like, there's no question about it. I'm, I'm a low risk woman. I can't be, I can't be asked to have to bring the baby home. That was it. That was <laughs> that, you know, I wanted to be comfortable. I wanted to be in my house and yeah. I wanted to feel safe and protected and in my space and, I couldn't understand why anyone would make me want to go to the hospital. Like, you couldn't make me want to go to the hospital. So that was it. That was it. I've got no romantic notions about it. I understood that I could potentially transfer in. Uh, things may not go to plan. But I was pretty set on the fact that I was going to have a home birth. And that was, that. you know, no one was going to change my mind. And that was that. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's how that went. <laughs> so how did it go? Hmm. I'm, I'm going to make this like really short. Uh, my answers are never really short, but I'm going to make it as short as possible. Um, it didn't go. <laughs> it didn't go. Um, I. It was just a really bizarre experience. It was all very strange. Um, I didn't know any of the midwives from, from where I am because, well, I, I didn't work here. And so what ended up happening was I was in labour, I was at home and everything was fine and my sisters were with me. So two of my sisters and my sister-in-law, Omar just stayed downstairs because <laughs> to be quite honest with you, some men are made for it and some men aren't. And so I had sort of like my sisterhood and I had my team around me and my oxytocin was high and I was ready to go, like, you know, absolutely fine. And the midwife came and she was okay. But again, I didn't really need her. Like, you know, I wasn't leaning on her in that way. Um, so, she, you know, she's nice enough. And within about 20, maybe an hour, she examined me and she got, she said I was more than I was. And these small things make a big difference. Mm. So already, it wasn't that my trust in her was gone, but it was like, okay, fine. But that's okay. We all make mistakes. Mm. How did you know that she was that she wasn't reading it correctly at that point? She told me. So oh. she said, she went, "You're seven centimeters." Before coming out of the cervix, she told me this, and then she said, "Oh no, wait, you're four. There's a very big difference between seven and four. Yeah. But you know, fine, it is what it is. As long as I'm not two, it's absolutely <laughs> fine." And then I thought, okay, let's just keep powering on. It's fine. And then I'm in the pool and I'm sort of really back in the zone. Like I'm going to get myself to like I'm, the next six centimetres, I'm going to do it. And she says to me, oh, I'm sorry. I've just been sick in your toilet. I'm going to have to leave. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and my sister always tells this story. She says, you were so nice. I've never seen you be so nice. And she said, you said to her, are you OK? <laughs> and I'm thinking, God, I must have been thinking, what the bloody hell? 
<laughs> so, well, especially you know, when you know that you put, and I, if someone's sick, someone's sick, but you put so much care and you and weight on what you what that experience is for the woman yes. and what your input yeah. in is. So to for someone to be that must be really heartbreaking actually because you obviously want what you give yeah and I, I i remember thinking but did you not know that you weren't feeling great before coming yeah and i was just thinking like as like a rational person going well what like oh okay but you decided to come anyway but okay but fine and she said so unfortunately another midwife is going to have to come come out and i said well that's fine you know they're not best mates anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But at this point, my oxytocin is sort of kind of reducing a little bit. I'm a bit like, what the bloody hell is going on? And I'm like, I just need to go to my room. I need to go upstairs. I need to, you know, be, I need to feel centred again. Sod the pool. I'm going upstairs. And... Even about, as you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, oxytocin is down. <laughs> down. There is no exactly. love in the room. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> And she she comes to me and she says, oh, unfortunately, there aren't enough midwives to come out to you. Would you mind transferring into the birth centre? Now, I knew that this was something that could happen. But no, it wasn't going to happen. Like, I said to her, no. <laughs> I said, I am doing absolutely fine. I know it's now 3 a.m. I know that I'm not going to have had this baby by 8 a.m. Therefore, the day staff will be on. You just need to organise it like it's absolutely fine. I know I'm taking uh, the risks I'm taking. Mm. Please, can I just stay here? I said, OK, well, I'll let the midwife know. So she, I then go upstairs and I'm, you know, labouring, whatever. And within about 45 minutes, another midwife turns up. And she says, oh, um, she walks into the room. She doesn't say who she is. She doesn't say hello. So the other midwife says, oh, this midwife's going to be taking over. And she just looks at me. And I was like, okay, that's fine, whatever. Um, and so then she said, oh, well, let's just do the handover. And the midwife says, let's do it outside. And I said, you can do it here. I was like, I know you're talking about me. I know what's going on. Like, you know, let's just talk it through, whatever. And um, she's not very happy at the fact that I'd kind of said, let's just do it here. Mm. Um, and so they do this handover and... She doesn't introduce herself to any of my family. She just kind of looks around the room and she says, oh, there are loads of you here, aren't there? And I'm like, okay. And um, and I was like, if I wasn't having contractions, if I wasn't <laughs> in the middle of my labour. And um, she... So after that, um, I'm now labouring and Ihsan is back to back. And so these contractions are coming one after the other and it's just getting a lot and she'd examined me and I was five centimetres and I was like, OK, that's great, whatever. Um, two hours later, it's getting too much. And I say, you know, I'm thinking she hasn't really spoken to me in this time. And, um, you know, I'm not feeling particularly like we're gelling at all. Yeah. Um, and she says, "What is?" She? so I said, I want to transfer. I think I want to transfer in. I need some pain relief. Can you examine me? If I haven't progressed, I want to transfer in. And so she examines me again and she says, oh, you're five centimetres. And I was like, for God's sake, OK, I'm transferring in. And I'd already decided this, don't get me mm -hmm. wrong. But I'll, I, I'll never forget that she said, I think you could have done it if you weren't so tired. 
And it's so, so, so important, the language that we use with people, because don't forget, I'm exhausted, I'm, I'm in pain, but I, I'll never forget the fact that she said that, that it was actually my fault. Now, that may not have been her intention, but what that language does is it puts that onus on me that you didn't do it because you couldn't. And so I'm like, OK, whatever, I'm going in. Um, What's fascinating about talking to you about it is that you know what midwife, what that role is. That's what I find so fascinating. So it's not like it's a woman who's never experienced it before and is going through it for the first time and unsure what that mm-hmm. situation is. You're in that room every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you should be doing and I know what you're not doing. Mm. You know, I know that you aren't feeding me. I know that we're not getting on very well. Um, and I know that you're not doing anything to change that. And that was what made a difference because I have gone into rooms where I'm like, oh man, like we're not gelling, but I'm going to try and make this different. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. There are going to be some people that you just don't connect with, yeah. but your job is the same and your attitude has to remain the same. Um, you read the room and you say, I know what's needed of me. And maybe that's what she was doing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I transfer in and she's coming behind me in her car and I get to the I get to the room and I'm introduced to another midwife who's really nice you know fine and um she comes in my room and she says oh well I'll just leave you here now um my shift is finished I'll look on the system to see what happened um I'll look on this to see what happened okay take care and I was like bye like okay fine um so I'm left with this other midwife who's really nice. Um, you know, I have some pethidine, managed to sleep a little bit. And she wakes me up after about an hour and she says, oh, baby's heart rate's dropping every now and then. Um, you know, we're going to have to go to delivery suite. And I said, OK, it's fine. So I'm like walking to delivery suite and my sister-in-law and Omar are with me. And I say, oh, I'm going to have a section, by the way. And she goes, you've got this, you've got this, like this. And she's really trying to lift me. And I'm just going, no, I'm not giving up. I'm just telling you. I've seen this series of events before. I'm just telling you. And um, I get to the delivery suite and I'm lying there and uh, a doctor comes in. And she says to me, "Um, hi, I'm so-and-so. Your waters have been broken for eight hours. You're not progressing. So you need to have the hormone drip. And I'm thinking, no, I don't. And I said to her, I'm not having the hormone drip. And she said, that's my advice. I said, I know that's your advice, um, but I'm going to decline it because I haven't had enough time. You are all in my space. I'm not Mm -hmm. mobilising. And also her heart rate is dipping. We don't need to put any more pressure on her right now. Um, And she's really annoyed. She walks out and it's a bit of a strop. And I was like, I just don't care. And she then comes back and she says, well, you've got until, you know, you've got another four hours. And then I was like, oh. and I remember thinking to myself, I'm not going to be pregnant in four hours. So whatever. <laughs> and I said, I said to her, yeah, you can do what you want. It's fine. And um, so she goes out and it's now I'm a write off. She doesn't like me anymore. That's fine. I don't care. But within about 10 minutes, Ihsan's heart rate starts dropping and the midwife says, you know, it's been down for a minute. I'm going to ring the buzzer. Lots of people are going to come in. I said, I know it's fine. Yep, it's fine. Ring the buzzer. So they come in and the doctor says. Category one section and that's under general anaesthetic. And I said, no, 
I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to be asleep. I'm not doing that. And I said, her heart rate is going to come back up and we can make a decision. Then he's like, everyone get her ready. And there's someone in my, someone who's putting a cannula in my arm and there's blood going everywhere and there are people everywhere. And I'm like, I'm not going to sleep. Just give her a second. It will recover. It will recover. Within two more minutes, her heart rate comes back up to normal. And he says, fine, we'll downgrade to a category two section, which is where Omar could come with me and I'm awake. And I said, yeah, we will. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> um, so I've accepted that I'm having a section. But again, if you, you can hear, things are just very much out of my control and I'm trying, yeah. I'm clutching at whatever control I can get. I'm like, you're not going to put me asleep because that was the only thing I had any control over was you are not going to get any consent from me to do this unless my daughter is dying. That's it. So um, I had this, I went into theatre and it took the, the anaesthetist like five attempts to put the spinal in my back. And I'm just like, I'm like, what is going on? And all of these things, they, they seem small, but they're huge. And I'm lying on the table and I'm just sort of chatting to Omar and I get this smell. I get this smell of burning flesh. And I said, what is that smell? Have you started? And he said, yeah, we started five minutes ago. And I'm like, what? Like, obviously I'm dead and I can't feel anything on my legs. And I'm like, what? You started five minutes ago. This is major surgery. You are opening up my stomach. And no one thought to let me know until I get that wafting smell of sort of mm. cauterized flesh. What is going on? And she's, you know, within a few minutes, she's born. And I didn't actually know she was a girl, but I knew she, I knew she was a girl like gut wise, but I didn't, I hadn't found out. And they lift her over the curtain. And I, I, I remember because my reaction in my head when I envisioned giving birth, I just had such like this sense of like I'd hold my baby to my chest and I would just breathe her in. And they just showed her to me over the drapes. And I remember just one tear coming out and then just feeling really low right from then. Like, what? What just happened? And so they then brought her back. And they double wrapped her in a towel and they gave her to Umar. And so I sort of just looked at him holding her and, you know, whatever, until they finished. And so they finished and um, eventually we got to recovery and I was able to hold her. And it just felt a little bit like, oh, OK. Oh, right. Well, now what? Like, you know, I guess I should probably try and feed her, like, maybe, or, you know, the midwife in me had left the building. And... How heartbreaking when you know how special it has been for you to hold other people's babies in yeah. that moment. And then suddenly you've got yours and you're just so overwhelmed and it must yeah. feel so heartbreaking. And it was, it was a pattern, you know, it became like a thing of that first night in the hospital and I said, she screamed the whole night and I said to the midwife, can you come and help me? Can you help me to feed her? And she said, I'm not going to tell you anything that you don't already know. And I say this to anyone who is in the position to help people with breastfeeding or to, 
never ever make an assumption that anyone knows anything. Like I have never fed my own baby before. I've helped a lot of women feed, but I've never done that. And I've never had a, a wound in my abdomen and a catheter hanging out. And I've never been so sleep deprived in my life. And I just need you to basically do this. And a wonderful, wonderful healthcare assistant came and she took Isan away for two hours. And she just, she brought her back to me, just snug as a bug and in her cot. And and I remember just feeling like those two hours sleep, that was just, but I didn't feel like a mum. What I felt like was someone had taken my niece or something so that I could get some sleep. And so when she was brought back to me, I was like, oh yeah, you're sleeping now, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine, <laughs> just, just sleep. Um, and that kind of continued on, that kind of sense of like, oh, oh, she mind, but yeah, but... And I could say to anyone, can you hold her? Can you just take her? You mm. know, she's screaming, can you just take her? She lost a lot of weight. She had a severe tongue tie, which no one picked up until um, an infant feeding specialist came over. And, you know, it was, you need to go into hospital and you need to be pumping and you need to do this and you need to do that. And that just created this kind of really funny thing between me and her, where I was just like... You want something of me that I cannot give you. Like, I don't feel in a space where I can give it to you. I don't know. I don't know how. Um, I, For me, I liken that first three weeks to hell. And breastfeeding was a huge part of that. Yeah. And I persevered. And I'm so glad that I did because it did become, you know, a good experience, a very positive experience. Mm. But the mum sweats that I would get, the feeling of constantly having my this thing attacking my boobs and... It is that weird thing. You you know that you love them, but it, it's just not how you imagined motherhood to be. Exactly. And so when the feeding thing, I just... Breastfeeding to me, I knew that it was difficult or whatever, but I just thought that we would take to it like ducks to water and bloody hell did we not. And I had the health visitor come and say, you can top up, you know, it's okay to top up. And she kept, like, saying it and I was like... Don't tell, I hope that you don't tell women this. Don't do this. We know in the middle of the night, we know that we can give formula and we really, really want to. But support us in the fact that we are pumping, feeding, pumping, feeding, topping up, doing all the rest of it because we want to breastfeed and we trust in our ability to do so. Um, and I did have, you know, people come over and try and help and, but it just took perseverance. It took a lot of perseverance and um, determination. And I say to women, you know, do you, is, am I going to find breastfeeding hard? And I'm like, maybe, quite possibly. And you have to make a decision yourself as to whether or not you want to persevere. And it is OK if you don't. Yeah. But it will take that perseverance. It makes it doesn't make you any less of a mother, any less of a woman or any weaker. It's just a decision that you made. Mm -hmm. right now I can't give my energy to this because it needs something else I for me so happy mum had baby literally came from this I was six weeks in and I was on the phone to my friend crying and just being like it's just so hard and she said to me gee you don't need to do this you do not need like if it's making you so unhappy you've got a happy mum makes a happy baby like you can't if it's taken too much out of you, there's so much other stuff, the love and everything else that you can give your baby that is is so much more important than you being yeah. sad and depleted. And uh, and just hearing those words made me go, 
I've got a choice. And that was enough. That was yeah. enough for me to kind of go, I've got a choice and I'm going to I'm going to just keep going and keep going and see where we get. And I always said in my head, that I would go for six months. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. The food starts then, I'll go for six months. And then uh, six months or when he gets teeth. To me, that sounded sensible. Me too. And then, <laughs> yeah. And then when, he got, when six months came, I was like, oh, oh, well, we've only just really got into it now. So that this isn't, and his feet is eating. So actually it's less anyway. And then when he got teeth, Buzz actually never nipped me. So I was like, oh, it's fine. fine. And then so he's one, then he was one. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, actually I'll wrap this up now. But from where we started to where we finished, you know, I think everyone thinks it's going to be easy. And I think people think that mums who breastfeed, that they have found it easy, but it's a very yeah. personal experience to each individual. I think it's like we don't have that like I'm just going to give them a bottle and it will fill them up and they'll go to sleep and bottle mothers who bottle feed have their own challenges mm -hmm. like they can't just give another bottle when the baby's really colicky whereas we could just be like get on the boob again and on again <laughs> and again like you know each 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 choice has its challenges yeah. don't get me wrong but especially after like a year the relationship with breastfeeding becomes like oh my god child <laughs> like you know <laughs> it, it, it changes because you start to realize the emotional need because they're expressing it to you in a different way they're kind of telling you I'm really sad right now give me boob I'm really happy right now I want some boob like it's, it's <laughs> celebratory like, drink <laughs> yeah exactly toast to us like you know and you think, gosh, like, can you not just go and fulfil that need in another way? Can I not just hug you instead? Because actually having you attached to me in that way is is difficult. Mm -hmm. So people think that women who are breastfeeding beyond a year or beyond six months are doing it because they want to. But often it's because it's fulfilling an emotional need in your child and a physical, probably an emotion, and an emotional need in mothers. I always say this, like, we... It does something to us as well. Don't think that everything that you're doing is for your child because if it was a problem for you, you would have stopped. Because once something's a problem for you, you tend to just stop it. <laughs> so, you know, I say to women, you know, are they, they say, oh, are they sleeping through the night? I'm like, well, if they say no, I'm like, is it a problem for you? And if they say no, it's like, well, that's fine then. Yeah. Once it's a problem for you, then it's a problem. Yeah. So I say, you know, breastfeeding post one, you're like, oh, man, like oh, it's so annoying. However, we have those moments together, you yeah. know, like we have those moments together and actually it's quite nice and it's centering and it's grounding and it saves this space, this protected space that is just for you and your child who is aware of what they're doing. So that post one, it's very different. They know that they can go to their mum for that warmth and so for both of you, you kind of look at each other, you enjoy it, and and it it's just so different. But it does take its toll, both physically, yeah. emotionally, mentally. You know, Isan, since lockdown, has been feeding, like, I don't know, like six times a day. And I'm like, oh, oh my, my God, gosh. not again. Oh, my God, not again. She's 19 months, Giovanna. Like, 
oh my god <laughs> I'm just like sometimes I literally try and run like I try and run or like I've taken to giving her these like chocolate buttons I'm like oh yeah chocolate yeah 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 have some chocolate like I don't even care like <laughs> whatever you want that is not me um so yeah oh. at what point did you feel that cloud of overwhelming you know being completely well just overwhelmed with everything going on at what point did you feel that lift when did you feel the so, bond start to creep in what happened was i was by myself with her and that was that was quite rare because my sisters had been in and out and my sister-in-law and my brother like everyone my mum was like just watch her be with her you know and I didn't notice it at the time, but she was constantly protecting me. And my and my older sister, Salsaville, was very much like, watch her, protect her, look after her, be, you know, just... just In terms just, of you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just watch, just, she's on the edge, yeah. watch her. And my younger sister, um, Zanjabil, was... She kept coming back from uni and she'd stay for long amounts of time. And when Ihsan would scream throughout the night, she would walk up and down the stairs with her for hours so that I could just sleep. So everyone was protecting me in a way that was like, didn't feel overwhelming and didn't feel judgmental. It was just, let's support mm -hmm. whatever she needs. Um, and one day everyone had gone out <laughs> and I was like, oh, bollocks um <laughs> it's just me and you kid like I guess we better just deal with this and I she started screaming and I was like oh shit like what am I supposed to do like I fed you what do you want da, da, da. and I would hold her like I didn't have any problem holding her being with her whatever and but it was always very purposeful it was like I'm holding you now it's to go to sleep now it's to feed like it was it was task orientated mm -hmm. and I remembered, I hadn't really forgotten, but like I thought, well, let me just put her in the sling. And because that means I can use my hands and I can do some other things. And I put her in the sling and I, I'll never forget, I had a shirt on and I opened a couple of buttons on this shirt and I put her in the sling, strapped her in and just put my hand over her head slightly and she went quiet. And I remember literally just kissing her head and her breathing changed and she just went to sleep. And I was like, oh. And I sat down and I held her on me the whole time, her head against my chest, this soft, soft baby. I held her on my chest and the slow, slow breathing. And I was like, this is it. This is it. <laughs> And that was a moment of realisation that she needs me and I can do it. Mm -hmm. And I will give this baby everything that she needs from me. I'd been resisting. I'd been resisting for so long, wanting her to just do what I needed her to do. Yeah. And what she needed was for me to do what she needed me to do. And I sat with her like that for hours no, I, I think people came home. I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> I sat with her and the two of us just hanging out. And let me tell you, she didn't leave that sling till she was about 13 months. <laughs> <laughs> so it 
was like the best but worst thing ever. Like she fed in the sling, she slept in the sling, she played in the sling, like everything was the sling. I have huge boobs and it was brilliant because I was able to just kind of like hoik out her breast and she was able to feed like honestly I'd be in Zara and my sister would say Eileen your breast is out and I'm like oh I can't even feel anything anymore <laughs> like you know that's it um and so I basically gave her what she needed I've ended up with really bad sciatica because my child is huge and I was carrying her in the sling um not and I knew I wasn't hold I didn't have it on the best way because it mm -hmm. needed to be slightly lower so that she could feed and um that <laughs> that basically I was willing to do it it didn't matter and people would say to me when are you going to stop carrying that child when are you going to take out the push when are you going to take out your push I bought a bugaboo I, I was all geared up and I don't even know where the bloody thing is like you know we didn't use it because she was a sling baby she needed to be close to her mum and I was willing to give that to her. And it was magical. Like, I, I look back at that time with nothing but absolute fondness. Um, and extremely proud of myself. And I, I say this to people who've been through trauma or who have been through a difficult time. Never, ever be afraid to give yourself the credit that you are due. It is it's not the moment where you need to be humble and, oh, no you did that you overcame that you persevered and you had the patience and you had the love and you had the power to overcome anything that was against you and give your child exactly what they needed and so you need a pat on the back for that and diamonds and a car and a house and <laughs> lots of other things <laughs> just like you do for going through lockdown without your husband around Exactly. <laughs> Were, was there a point where you processed your labour? Did you feel like you had to sort of sit with it and work your way through it and kind of just almost forgive and come like come to a peace with everything and how it turned out? Because mm. I think we all go in so, with an expectation. Yeah. So post-birth, I was like, well, that was a bit of a shit show. But it's fine. I'm I'm... Like, I don't know if you sort of picked up. I'm very like, oh, it's fine. Move on. It's fine. I just, like, that's, that's sort of how I approach everything. And I am being like, you know, it doesn't matter. And I tell the story and I'd laugh with people. I'd be like, yeah, she said she was sick. And yeah, she was a bit of an idiot. And, you know, it's fine. But each time that was like chipping away at this part of me that I knew was not fine. I knew it. But I was like, if I show it, I'm weaker. If I show it, people won't get it because it's not trauma in explicit terms of like I lost loads of blood and I nearly died it is not that type of trauma so people will just think that I'm just being over the top um and so for a very long time I didn't really speak about it in in those terms in in trauma terms um until I got back to work and I was assisting in a cesarean section and I got that smell again. And I stood there absolutely paralysed. And I, I, I couldn't move. I saw myself on that table. It was so, so triggering that I, I couldn't do anything. Because I, I can only explain it. It's like an outer body experience. And that began the process of 
right, well, something wasn't right there. There's something that you haven't visited mm. um, and you should probably unpick it a little bit. And so that changed how I would then approach speaking about my birth. And it also brought back memories of certain events that I hadn't, like I didn't remember, you know, and that happened there, didn't it? And why was that? And, you know, it took away the sense of failure, which I hadn't been able to shake. As much as Isan and I were great again, I was like, but why did I not, why couldn't I do it? So it then started to unpick that. I didn't fail. That wasn't me. Yep. And it was okay to blame the people whose fault it was. Mm -hmm. Because we're taught, like, you know, everything happens for a reason. Da -da -da -da. But some of those things didn't need to happen. And they did. Yeah. And so it meant that those people had to be held accountable for their part in what happened to me. And I didn't have to be nice about it anymore. And I could be very honest about what their actions did. And it was very cathartic because it, it kind of led to forgiveness, um, not forgetfulness. Um, <laughs> so I started that whole process after being back at work and kind of saying, right, well, how do we kind of deal with this? Um, what, what were the issues? Um, and I think a lot of it led to me creating this Instagram page of just being very open about my life. And I think... My husband didn't know. I hadn't spoken to him about it. <laughs> and it's funny because people will say, you know, I told my husband. I didn't. I didn't feel like I, it was something I needed to do. And all of this has become this, this whole process of, of offloading um, and unpicking and dealing with it um, over the last, I'd say, probably about six months. Do you feel like at... when you share something and when you start unpicking and when you hear those voices back, does mm -hmm. it almost validate, because I know it does for me, validate the way that you're feeling and you feel less alone in those thoughts? You feel less of a failure because you hear other people express something and you're like, but you've not failed. So you realise that if they've not failed, then neither have you. So what ends up happening to me is I, by sharing it with someone else... I get rid of it. Mm. Like, I honestly say it's out there now. It's gone. I feel free in, like, just with a load of strangers on the internet. Yeah. I, it's freeing. It's like I'm being open and I'm being honest and I've dropped it out there. And I don't feel bad because it's not like speaking to my husband or my mum who may want to fix how I feel. It's okay. I can deal with that. I don't need it to be fixed. But I need it to be gone. I need to be free of it being inside me and it needs to be out somewhere else. And as a result, I'm then able to help other people. And that puts me back in the midwife role. Yeah. I don't want to be a victim. I want to help you. So by, by me sharing that part of me, I'm able to help you. And that's, that's what I love doing. If I can help you to feel liberated and to feel free, then I'll do that 1,000 times. I will tell my story over and over and over again if it helps you to feel that you are as incredible as you are. How has going through labour and becoming a mum affected you as a midwife? I am super grateful for the midwives that I had who have made me 10 times better. Their failure has helped me and has shaped me 
into the midwife that I always wanted to be. So I'm on this path now to becoming to becoming who I want to be, who to, be, to becoming the person that is inside of me the whole time, that without this experience may have taken a lot longer. So now I approach labour in a very different way. I'm like, let's do this. How does this woman need to be empowered? Not does she need to be empowered, but how can I make this experience so that she feels on top of the world? Because mm. I didn't feel that. And so this is why, like, being involved in emergencies and traumatic experiences really is difficult for me to digest because if it was up to me, no one would ever have a traumatic experience. These things do happen. Um, and I, anyone who is in my care from here on out, it is always my aim going in to ensure that you come away feeling like you're the shit. <laughs> you know you are incredible I don't care if it's your first baby or your 10th you are magic that's that's the aim and that has only happened since having my own baby because I know what parenting is I know the love you feel for your child I know the strength it takes to carry that child within you to then give birth to that child and then give it everything from you emotionally mentally and physically I know what that takes and I know for most people it starts after having the baby some people it may have started in pregnancy but for most people it starts when they are holding that baby and so that start is everything mm -hmm. and so if I can make your start amazing those dips in the middle you can usually come out okay so that night when it's just crying all night, <laughs> but it's okay because I'm amazing. <laughs> I'm amazing. I've got this. So that's the aim. And that is what having my own baby has certainly done. Um, I wrote a book this year, Letters on Motherhood. Uh, and I was wondering if you could write a letter on motherhood, who would mm -hmm. it be to and what would you say? If I could write a letter on motherhood, I would write it to the mother who is up in the middle of the night, crying her eyes out, thinking it doesn't get better. And I would tell her, every moment with your child is passing. It's okay, go through it, it changes, and there'll be another moment. Nothing lasts forever. I love that. Yeah, that's what it would be. <laughs> that even made me well off a little I bit. Know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna just like, take that little note and just play it to myself anytime I find myself with a tantrum in toddler. <laughs> Come on, bring me your wise words. And, and we finish each episode with you finishing these three sentences. Are you ready? Being, <laughs> being a mum means everything since everything. having children I am better and I'm happy when when I'm safe 
Oh, you've been such a joy to talk to. So have you. This has been great. Ah, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.